Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning. Hey, as uh, our offering is, is passed today, I want to just again just remind you why uh, we've done some redecorating here across the, the front of the room. It's because this week is our Vacation Bible School Week. And if you've never been a part of one of our Vacation Bible School Weeks, let me just share with you a little bit about what that would look like. I want you to think about every person that you see in this room. Just look around right now, everybody you see in here. And then imagine that there was another room just like this just an hour ago full of people and imagine everybody in that room. Then imagine everybody you saw downstairs and everybody you saw over in the children's building this morning and everybody you see in the parking lot. I want you to imagine that all of those people that you saw are 11 years old or under. And that many people and more will be here this week. And what an incredible privilege we have to be able to point them to Christ. And uh, I, I just want to just thank so many of you for investing in that ministry. And, and you know, over 200 volunteers we have to, to minister to the over 600 children that we're going to have. And I want to just, just uh, ask you uh, to, uh, to participate in one other way in our VBS week. Um, when you walked in, you got a little uh, wristband. Looks like this. On my wristband, it has the name of Sweet Celia here. And I have the privilege of being able to pray for Celia this week for God to work in her heart and life. And would love for you to take that wristband that you got on the way in and have it be a reminder for you to continue to pray this week for those that God brings here to Wildwood through our VBS outreach. Now, you know, you, you do notice that we have taken a, a Dr. Seuss like turn. Um, and this is kind of the canvas on which the truth of the gospel will be proclaimed this week. And, you know, as we think about uh, Dr. Seuss, we didn't just pick any book, uh, but we picked one specific book that Dr. Seuss wrote, and that's the book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. How many of you have ever read that book? How many of you have given that book to somebody as they graduated or something? All the way back since 1990, this book has been in circulation and has been extended to many. And, and it's, it's a very interesting book. It's in Dr. Seuss style, great art, uh, the, the poem rhymes. But, you know, I, I've wondered if Dr. Seuss um, looked to Christ before he wrote that song that, or that, that, uh, that poem, would he have written maybe a few more words? And if he had, maybe they would go something like this. Congratulations. Today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. You have his spirit in your soul. You have feet in your shoes. With Jesus, your savior, you've nothing to lose. You're never alone, and you know you are known. And his truth is our guide. Oh, the seeds he has sown. You'll look up and down scripture, look them over with care. With his direction, you'll say, I don't choose to go there. With your soul full of spirit and his word, your true meat, he'll protect you from going down the not-so-good street. But it's not just some stuff we're called to put down. On mission, of course, we'll share his renown. Out there, things can happen and frequently do to people who follow and worship as you. And when things start to happen, don't worry, don't stew. Just keep trusting him. He'll take care of you, too. Oh, the places you'll go. You won't lag behind because he'll cover the need. He loves you, forgives you, and he'll be your lead.
Friends, we get to offer the truth of the gospel to children this week. And because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and because he's not just the God of children, but the God of adults, the four key truths that we're going to be teaching children this week in our Vacation Bible School are truths that we need to be reminded of as well. You know, the first day of Vacation Bible School, we want the kids to be reminded that no matter where they go, that Jesus made them for a purpose. We're going to point out that truth by looking at the story of Esther from the Old Testament. In the second day of VBS, we're going to be talking about how we need to remember that Jesus is always with us no matter where we go. And we're going to use that great story of Jesus walking on the water out to his disciples on the Sea of Galilee to help share that truth. And then the third day, we're going to remind everyone that no matter where they go, that Jesus loves them. And the reminder for that, of course, is the cross and the empty tomb. And Mary Magdalene and others who embrace that by faith. We're going to talk about that on day three. And then the last day of Vacation Bible School, we're going to talk about how no matter where we go, we need to remember that Jesus loves others through us. And we'll be talking about the Great Commission. A reminder that God doesn't just bless us so that we would be blessed, but he blesses us and has a plan for us to be a blessing to others. And so we're going to be talking about those things this week. And this morning, as we gather here in in this room, in front of this stage, I wanted us to look at a a particular passage of Scripture that talks a little bit about the places that we go. And this passage of Scripture is Psalm 139. Now, Psalm 139 is in the midst of one of the longest books of the Bible, longest book by chapter, and that is the book of the Psalms. It's a collection of, of songs, a reminder that Dr. Seuss didn't invent poetry, right? It's been around from the very beginning. And in the Hebrew language, the, the, the Israelites, they wrote some psalms inspired by the Holy Spirit where they rhymed thoughts together about the greatness of their God. And because of the beauty and the way that it was written, we can help remember the truths of God. And so I want us to look today at one of the Psalms that was written, Psalm 139. It was written by King David. And it's a Psalm that talks about how we can trust God no matter where we go. So if you have a Bible, open to Psalm 139. I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and look at it a little more in depth. Psalm 139 is actually a song that has four stanzas, each six verses long. And so we'll read these all together, and then I'll go back and we'll look at each of those stanzas of the song to see what we can learn about God in the places that we go. It says that this is to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, You're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. 
The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when it was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Friends, these are the words of Psalm 139. And this song is beautifully arranged under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by King David, who put it into four stanzas. The first of those stanzas is found in the first six verses of this psalm. And in those six verses, we see this incredible truth that there's nothing that he does not know. There's nothing that our God does not already know. Now, when we say that, we're talking about the, the, the doctrine or the idea, the theology that God is omniscient, that he knows all things. And when we say that God knows all things, we mean, of course, that, that God knows all of the math, even calculus. He knows all of the engineering, how to apply that math to the world in which we live. How is it that our world works? It works because God, who knows it all, designed it all. It just works together that way. But not just does he know the math, but he also knows the science, the biology, the chemistry, and the physics. The universe is designed and put together in just such a way. God is omniscient. He built it the right way. And not only is he knowing the math and the science, but he also knows the history. And not just the pre-Civil War U.S. history that I learned every year going, growing up, but he knows the history even after 1865. And he knows the history, even not just in one country, but in every country, and of everything that has happened to every speck of dust in all of the universe for all of creation. God knows it all. God is omniscient. God knows every word that has ever been written. He knows every song that has ever been sung. He is omniscient. But in light of the omniscience of God, I think it's fascinating that when David writes this psalm, he doesn't focus on God's knowledge of math, science, literature, music. He doesn't focus on God's knowledge of science. What does he focus on in the first six verses? The omniscience of God related to David. That's what David is focused on. Look at what he says. He says, Lord, you have searched what? Me. You have known me. The, the, language, the original language here, when it talks about searching, is, is a word that would have been used in the ancient language to talk about like Lewis and Clark and their exploration of the Louisiana Purchase. 
right? They, they searched out that land. They, they mapped the rivers. They charted the mountains. They met the people. The observable things in the world were searched out by Lewis and Clark. What David is saying here is that the observable things in David's life, God has searched out. He, he knows the boundaries. He knows everything that David has done. But David goes even further because that word search does not just talk about the things that are observable on the outside, but it's also a word that can be used of a mining operation that goes down into the earth and pulls out the minerals. It's as if David is saying, Lord, not only do you know the perimeters of my life, not only do you know the contours of my life, but you have gone down into my soul and you have pulled out that which no one else knows and you have exposed it to your light. God, you have searched me and you really, really know me, David says. There's nothing about my life outside or inside that you don't know. David further exemplifies this by using a literary device called a merism, where he talks about two things, like bookends, to say this is true and that is true, and so is everything in between. David says, you know when I sit down or when I rise up, both edges of his life, when he's standing and when he's sitting and everything in between, David says, God, you, you know all about me. You know all of those things about me. He says, you have searched out my path and my lying down. When I'm awake and when I'm sleeping, God, you know it all. You know everything about my life. You're acquainted, he says, with all of my ways, all of them. Not some of them, not just the ones that David's good friends knew, not just the ones that David's family knew, but the ones that nobody knew except David and God. He says, you know all of my ways. He says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. God knew David's thoughts even before David could articulate them. God knew with such depth. Back in verse 2, he describes it. He says, you discern my thoughts from afar. It's not talking about a far distance, but a far time. An eternal God looked at David and understood his thoughts before David did. In light of the the full way in which David was known by God, David says in verse 5, he concludes, You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. In other words, David says, I can't even fathom how much you know. And I feel almost trapped by who you are. I'm surrounded by you, God. That's David's comment. Now, when we think of that truth of God's omniscient, about the fact that there's nothing that he does not know, there's a portion of that truth that is extremely comforting to us, isn't it? I mean, to think that there's nothing that God doesn't know, that, that means that God can be just in the areas where we want justice because he knows about it and he'll make good on those things. To think that God knows everything gives us comfort that when God speaks about prophecy, he understands what it will take to make that come to pass because he knows everything. He knows how the story will end. There's comfort that comes from that. But even more than that, when we think about God's omniscience concerning us, there's a comfort that comes from that too, right? Because we enjoy relationships that require fewer footnotes, don't we? 
me give you an example of that. There are certain people in my life that when I talk about my life, they just understand without me having to footnote it and tell them why something matters or who someone is. Now, I've known my wife since the seventh grade. We probably played together in a nursery somewhere together, but we did not start dating then. Seventh grade, we met. We went to college. We began dating. And over the course of that time, we've known each other so long that there is really nobody in my life that she doesn't know about. So when I, when I talk about Coach Hesser, she knows who that is. When I talk about Tate, I don't have to explain that. She, she just knows. We can have conversations with a glance. Knowing that the God of the universe knows all things ought to give us some measure of comfort that, that he can understand us when we go to him in prayer. He understands all that we're going through. There's a part of it that is comforting. But there's also a part of it that is terrifying, isn't there? That God would know all things? There's a part of that that is terrifying because if God knows it all, are we accountable for it all? In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, in verse 13, the, the writer says this. It says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If God knows all things, that which is observable on the outside and that which has to be, go deep and mine out of our soul, if God knows all of those things, there's a part of that that is terrifying because we will one day have to give an account for that. You know, David didn't just say this um, just as, as a flippant comment. David said this as somebody who had some skeletons in his closet, didn't he? I mean, David had done things. He had committed adultery. He had set a man up for murder. He tried to fool an entire nation and all of his army in the midst of his sin. David, who tried to, to, to confuse the world, understood as he writes this psalm that he could not confuse God. God knew him at an intimate level, and there's a part of that that would have been a, a frightening statement. And you know what? There's part of it that's frightening for us because all of us have things in our past. All of us have a few skeletons in our closet, things that we hope nobody on the row that we're sitting on knows about. Things that we're not proud of, things that might have taken place years ago, things that might have taken place minutes ago, but things that we hope never get exposed to the light. God knows them. That's what Psalm 139 reminds us of. You know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, remember the guy that wrote uh, Sherlock Holmes? Dr. Doyle had a theory about mankind that everybody, regardless of their reputation, was a person who had a few skeletons in their closet. And uh, he quipped one time to a newspaper reporter, uh, he never actually did this, at least there's no record of it, but he said, I, I, could, I could contact my friend, one of his friends was a person of high reputation, a leader in a church, said I could contact that friend and I could send him a note that says all is discovered, flee immediately, and that friend would disappear and we would never hear from him again. Well, why would Dr. Doyle make such a statement? Because all of us have things that we hope never are known or seen. And yet Psalm 139 reminds us that God already knows them. Well, in light of the knowledge of God, the omniscience of God, what do we do next? Well, we need to be reminded of a second truth, and that truth is this. There's no place that he cannot go. 
There's no place he can't go. This is right where, where David heads inside the psalm. In the second stanza of this song, in verses 7 to 12, he talks about the omnipresence of God. Because when we become aware of our sin, we have the propensity to do what people have done from the very beginning, and that is try to run away and hide from God. Adam and Eve sinned. What did they do? They hid in the garden. They weren't very good at it, but they, 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 they started there. Later on in history, other people that sinned, what, what, what do they try to do? Jonah, God says, go to Nineveh. Where does Jonah go? The other direction thinking that he could change his geography and get away from God. Peter has this colossal failure. He denies Christ three times. What does he do? He goes back to the lake. He, he has to get away from Jerusalem, away from the action, thinking that whatever lies ahead for the disciples would not include him because of his failure. And so he, he thinks that he can run away and hide on the Sea of Galilee. Friends, we have a propensity to want to run away. David talks about that in verse 7. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? In light of your omniscience, God, I want to run away, so where do I run to? He says, where shall I flee from your presence? He said, if I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Again, this is a merism. From the highest of heights to the deepest of depths, David says, there's nowhere I can go high or low that would take me away from you, God. Verse 9 If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you will find me. When when he he says this, think about the, the wings of the morning. In which direction does the sun rise? It rises from the east, right? And where was the Mediterranean Sea in relation to Israel? To the west. What What David is saying here is from the east to the west, from the highs to the lows, there is no place that I can go that would take me away from your presence, O God. I can't change my geography and hide. He says, verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light be about me at night. He says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. See, David had some experience in his life at hiding, didn't he? He ran away from King Saul. He he found that he could take cover in a dark cave and find some protection there. But David understood that hiding from God was way different from hiding from Saul. He could get in the dark and be out of Saul's reach. But even in the dark, he could not escape God. This is something that we we deal with as well, right? There's no place uh, that we can go that gets us away from God's presence. And and again, let's just think about this. There's part of that truth that is extremely comforting to us. There's part of the omnipresence of God which is absolutely encouraging to each, each of us in this room. Because when we think about it, that means that when we change our geography, God is already there. You know, if you're a parent in this room and you're getting ready to send a child off to college, guess what? God's already there. If you're getting ready to start a new school, God's already there. If you're getting ready to start a new job or move to a new city, God is already there. When we think about sending out mission teams to the world, this, this week we've got a, a group uh, from Wildwood that is going to Latvia to help serve in an orphan camp there. Guess what? We're not going there to bring God got news for us. God's already there. We're just going to point to the God who's already there. 
Because he's not just some territorial being. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to find him. He's, he's everywhere. We have access to God no matter where we are, whether we are in this building or whether we are in our home or whether we are someplace else altogether. And there's an, a, just a comforting, encouraging part of that. I can turn to the Lord and relate to him and, and know him and have a prayer with him, whether I'm in a church building or whether I'm at work. For me, it works out well at both of the same place. But you know what I'm saying? There's an encouragement to that. But guess what? There's also a part of that that is frightening to us, isn't there? That God is, is everywhere. There's, there's no place we can go to get away from his presence. You know, sometimes we have this mythology that, that teaches us that, you know, if I sin at church, boy, God really cares about that. But at home, eh, not that big a deal. If, if, I, if I sin in this room, that's bad. But if I sin in the workplace, well, God has more of a sliding scale out there. It's not the case. If I'm disrespectful to my pastor, oh no, if most of you don't think that, but if I, no, I'm just kidding. If I'm disrespectful to my pastor, that's, that's a problem. But if I'm disrespectful in another environment to my child or to my spouse or to my friend, to my colleague, then God doesn't care. Guess what? The omni presence of God reminds us that no matter where we are, it matters. God doesn't want us to look righteous in this building and be abusive in our homes. Absolutely antithetical to what it means to follow God. Absolutely foreign to the idea of of who God is. God is not just omniscient, but he's also omnipresent. And there's a part of that that ought to be frightening to you and me as people who struggle in this life, people who fall short and who sin. But here's the thing. When you look at this song, um, is this a song of lament or is this a song of praise? It's a song of praise. It's not a song of lament. And so here's the question. How can you and I live in a world with an omniscient, omnipresent God as sinful people and yet still have a life of praise? Well, the answer is found not by running away from God, but by running towards him. And why would we run towards an omniscient and an omnipresent God? We run towards him because David reminds us that he created us. This God who is omniscient, this God who is omnipresent, he actually cares about each of us. He created us for a purpose. We were created by him. We see this in verses 13 through 18 as David remembers what God has has done for him. The God who is omniscient, the God who is omnipresent actually is present in forming and shaping our lives. Listen to the care and concern that God shows towards us. It says in verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. That word form is like a potter with a piece of clay. Intention, design, purpose. Jonathan talked about this just a a couple of weeks ago in our service as we looked at Jeremiah together. Here the same idea. God is shaping us like a potter does his clay. He gives another analogy. You have knitted me together in my mother's womb. God is like a, a master seamstress stitching us together, not just in the big strokes, not just in the big shapes, but he's actually knitting the very fabric of our souls together. 
We're made with intention. We're made with purpose. We're made with design. We're made by a God who loves us and who cares about us from the very, very beginning. Verse 14, David erupts and says, I praise you for I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. David, in in light of this truth, just can't help himself but thank God for how he has put him together. You know, David doesn't have the, the luxury of 21st century science and investigation and our understanding of the human body and how complex it is. But based on what David knew, he still was able to say, you know, 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, he was still able to say, God, it is amazing what you have done with a human. The system, the way everything works together, the, the, the immaterial part of us that can relate to you who created us. This is unbelievable, God. You created me with purpose. You created me with a design. That's why we can run to him because of his care for us. He has a a purpose for us. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven together in the depths of the earth. Now, friends, David's biology was not that bad. He did not think that the storks lived underground and they were delivering babies in some way. What David was saying was, From the time that he was conceived and was so small that not even the naked eye on the outside world knew that he was alive, God was stitching him and putting him together at that point. It's a statement about life beginning at conception, at that moment when he's being put together. David says, from that point, God has been weaving him together, intricately making him, before eyes could even see his unformed substance, verse 16. In the book of God, every one of his days were written. What David is saying there is that the God who is omniscient and the God who is omnipresent cared for him and it prepared a path for him. So, What do you do when you find yourself in a situation where you are convicted of sin before an omniscient and an omnipresent God? Do you run and hide? No, you run to him who already knows of that sin, but who has shaped you and created you for a purpose. David is reminded of that. So he goes and he says in verses 17 and 18, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. David is just blown away by God's care and concern for him. He's going to run towards him and not away from him in that moment. We were created by him. But there's one last truth that we need to see that really pulls all of this together. And it's in the fourth stanza of this psalm. And that point is this. Though we are created for him, let's live for him. If we're created for him, let's live for him. Now, I think what's, what's fascinating is to look at the end of this psalm in connection to the rest of it. Because what we see throughout the psalm is God's knowledge of David. Again and again and again, just have your eyes scan through all of the different places David's understanding of God's knowledge of him is referenced. It's throughout the entire psalm. 
God's omniscience and his omnipresence have convinced David that God totally knows him. But if God totally knows him, then he knows about the sin with Bathsheba, the adultery that David committed. And if God really fully knows him, then he knows how he set Uriah up to be murdered, to try to develop a life free from guilt in some way apart from God. See, David had, like many of us, tried to find protection someplace else. But what David found was that the forgiveness and the hope that he needed was found not by running away from God, but by running back to him. In Psalm 51, David expressed that very clear in the form of a prayer as he confessed his sin to God and asked God to restore him, and God answered that prayer. The hope and the freedom that David needed were found with God, not away from him. And yet, you know what? So many times, we, you and I, try to find our hope someplace else. When we are faced with conviction, we try to find protection inside of our moral life. We try to find protection inside of a church building. In other words, if I just show up here, God won't judge me. If I just come and do my penance another week, if I just come and take communion one more time, that God will somehow pass over me and my sin will somehow go away because of my performance. But an omniscient and omnipresent God goes way beyond our religious practices. The only hope we have is not to make some pilgrimage to Jerusalem or to go spend some time on the Sea of Galilee or to spend some time in Capernaum where Jesus lived. Our hope for salvation from our sin is not to run to a geography, to a different place, or to a building. Our, our hope is to run to Christ who fully knows us and provides a way for our sin to be forgiven. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says it this way. It says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners and God knew all of our sin, Christ died for us. Jesus went to the cross, take the punishment and the penalty for all of our sin, all of that ugliness that was mined from our soul and the consequence that it required was placed on Jesus' shoulders. The weight of the beam of the cross was nothing compared to the weight of my sin. And yet Jesus bore it for me. And the same offer extends to each of us that his death could be the sacrifice that paid the penalty for each of our sins. We find forgiveness, we find hope, not by hiding from him, but by running to him. The God who knows it all made a way for us to be forgiven. And so the question is, are we going to live for him? Are we going to run to him? Or are we going to hide from him? David clearly made the decision to run to him. That's what verses 19 through 22 are all about. As he talks about the enemies of God being his enemies and all of those things, it's a little confusing for us in our modern ears to read. But the, the main point of that section is David is saying, I'm with you, Lord. I'm with you. I'm not going to run away from you. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to hope you didn't see it because I know you did. I'm going to run to you and ask for your protection. And then verse 23 and 24, he concludes with this beautiful, beautiful prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. You already know everything about me, God, but I just want to invite you to remind me of what you know. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Friends, 
Have you sat before the Lord and asked for him to convict you on how our life has been grievous to God in some way? In the face of that reminder of sin, have you stopped and thanked God for the forgiveness that is found in Christ? David ends by a reminder that the life that God has called us to is not merely a life where we are grieved by sin, but it's also a life that is proactively following our Savior. He asks God to lead him in the way everlasting. Friends, when was the last time you stopped before the Lord and asked him to lead you? In your day, in your morning, in your conversation, in your lunch, in your week, in your life. Friends, oh, the places we will go. And as we go, we will find that the Lord is there. We won't lag behind because he'll cover our need. He loves us, forgives us, and he'll be our lead. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you today. And Father, I want to pray just for every soul in this room. Father, as we read of who you are Father, there's a part of it that that is terrifying to us because it reminds us of our sinfulness and the fact that you know it and that we will have to give an account one day for our lives. And yet, Father, we, we pray thanking you as we live on people on this side of the cross that you love us in in spite of our sin. Father, and in light of our sin, you have loved us. And you sent Jesus to make a way for us to be connected to you forever. Father, may every heart in this room not run away from you, but towards you and towards the sacrifice that you provided in Christ so that we might have a hope for all eternity. And Father, that you would lead us as we follow you and serve you this week as we host these children here for VBS, but also in the rest of our lives and in the the rest of the days ahead. Father, that you would be glorified in all we do. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.